I'm Iris and this is Clearing the Air. And I'd first like to acknowledge that this broadcast is over stolen lands. 3CR sits on the lands of the Kulin Nations, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples. And I'd like to pay my respects to Elders, past, present and future. Sovereignty was never ceded. And yeah, we saw... And February 13th is coming up, which is the 10th anniversary of Rudd's Rudd's apology to the Stolen Generations. And we we see reports of the Stolen Generations continuing in, in like, this is like um, an example of of colonization continuing and um, it's up to, and non-Indigenous settlers such as myself have the responsibility to do what we can every day to challenge this um, colonialism and genocide that is ongoing. Okay, I thought I'd first talk about um, um, Midsummer. Midsummer is past, and I'm thinking about Midsummer in terms of a book I encountered and a finish called Trapdoor, which is an anthology that talks about trans visibility. And I I finished it last month. It's a really interesting book. And I'm thinking about, um, yeah, like I suppose Midsummer had this kind of image of celebrating gender nonconformity in terms of one of its main images on the program. What does this actually mean though for like um, the sort of, I guess, the marginalization um, many of the people in my trans net- networks face every day. So I think I'm just going to read a quote from the introduction. We are living in a time of trans visibility, yet we are also living in a time of anti-trans violence. These entwined proclamations lived in the flesh frame the conversations, interventions, analyses and other modes of knowing that are captured in Trapdoor. Consequently, we come to this project with a deep sense of possibility that also exists in an interval of of anxiety. All three of us in different yet sometimes overlapping capacities and via different yet sometimes overlapping self-identifications utilize and are imbricated in the production, presentation and circulation of visual culture. At the same time, we know that when produced within the cosmology of racial capitalism, the promise of positive representation ultimately gives little support or protection to many, if not most, trans and gender nonconforming people, particularly those who are low income and or or of colour. The very people whose lives and labour constitute the ground for the figuration of this moment of visibility. Um, So yeah, some long sort of analytical sentences there but that sort of like sets the tone of the book and um yeah i'm thinking about like the arts and writing and there's a lot of very talented trans performers and everything and yet they're paid yet like so many people are still like living off um Centrelink because they can't find jobs, they're not paid properly. This moment of visibility isn't really leading to an improvement in trans lives. So I kind, of, so I think I pretty much I relate strongly to a lot of 
the positions put in this book and I think there's like reasons to be um, quite like, yeah, pessimistic and cynical about this um, this moment we're in at the moment. Um, the other thing of note I'd like to bring up was like, so we, we saw at Midsummer someone detained for protesting at the, at the Pride March, I should say. Um, at the Pride March, we saw someone detained for yelling at the Liberal Party. And we saw uh, a trans person um, harassed by the police for chalking some slogans, including some anti-cop ones. And yeah, I suppose this is indicative of a lot of the problems at the moment with like these these ideas of inclusiveness. Who is like included in a parade that has cops and has the Liberal Party, has all these corporations? Who is include who is ex- excluded by that? And yeah, so there's a lot of and like, can you like rehabilitate anything on the politics of inclusiveness? Like, I think like this is sort of like some of the issues this book also brings out in terms of, um, in terms of how like um, the the failures of sort of a liberal sort of trans politics. In terms of like what's it what's this bringing what's this moment of visibility actually bringing to like improving our lives so many people are in poverty marginalized and yet like we have i mean there's like many ways in which yeah we have this like discourse of equality should be able to overcome all this and yet how false is that i'm gonna go to a um a track Burned by Race Rage. Yes, I was burned by Race Rage. And I'm Iris and you're listening to Queenia on 3CR Community Radio. 855am on your AM dial on 3cr.org slash streaming online and on digital radio. Um, so, and that was Race Rage with Burn. And you can find their things on their on their SoundCloud and our Race Rage on Facebook. And I guess touching on the themes in that song, there's, um, I saw yesterday there was a st- like the Stolen Wealth Games, also known as the Commonwealth Games, had a, a relay that was in the suburbs of Melbourne slash Nam, and so it's it's another year and the Stolen Wealth Games are on again and there's a protest about this because um because the Commonwealth is a collection of settler colonial sort of countries and yeah, oppresses indigenous people. So there's a protest at the Stolen Wealth Games that's being held on the Gold Coast this year and I'm just gonna read um the Facebook event, and I suppose, like, the thing with this protest is I need numbers, so if anyone can be at the Gold Coast, that would help a lot. Um, so here, here we go. This is quoting from 
the event. The 2018 Stolen Wealth Games will be reinvading our shores on the 4th to 5th of 15th of April 2018 for the fourth time on the Gold Coast Queensland. Each time Australia, in inverted commas, has hosted the Games, thousands of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders as well as other groups who have been oppressed by the Crown have united to resist colonial activity and authority. Over the, over the two weeks, a protest camp will be established at Broad Beach, Queensland. The protest camp will be a central hub throughout the Games for demonstrations, public forums and discussions, as well as workshops for cultural sharing and resistance concerts when the sun goes down. There will be showers, toilets and kitchen facilities on site. All you need to bring is your tribe, tent and all your passion and power. This event is brought to you by a national committee consisting of many different collectives and individuals. We hope to stand with many of you on the front line. If you would like to be involved in organising or would like to either perform or run a workshop, please don't hesitate to contact us on 0408 064900 or 0478 691 688. And I'll post a link to that on um, on the podcast of this show. And also related to um, colonization is February 14th. February 14th is the day that Captain Cook was um, was killed. And Captain Cook, this is also a quotation now, Captain Cook was an officer in the Royal Navy who who carried out recon, recon, reconnaissance and surveying miss, missions for the British government. His expeditions contributed to the colonization of Australia, New Zealand, the Pacific coast of BC and Hawaii. It was in in Hawaii that Cook was killed on Feb 14, 1779. So, um, yeah, so I suppose like, and I suppose like there was recently some monuments defaced and lots of controversy around um, whether it's okay to vandalize monuments. And I guess like putting things in perspective of like the overall colonial project, we can sort of see like the overall systemic violence um, of everything. And hmm. And another thing I've been thinking about is very 14th is also a kind of interesting day to be queer and single or single-ish because it is Valentine's Day or I guess Singles Awareness Day um, to be a bit, um, as some people have like used humour to, to call it. And yeah, I've been thinking about issues around like this the widespread expectation that everyone needs romance including queer people that it's universal and there's like there was an article that came out last year called romance is not universal nor is it necessary by Sharonda J Brown and I'm gonna read from it now so this is a quote 
romance is not universal or necessary. However, due to the way that romance has been heralded as a fundamental part of human experience, and even non-human animal experience in some instances, this is something that many people disagree with. So I'll say it again, romance is not universal or necessary. That idea that is necessary is one of the most... Um, is one that is deeply embedded among societal expectations and permissions about relationships and sex. And it is imperative for us to understand that our experiences with romance are not universal and that all orientations are valid. To many people, romance is a necessary part of their lives, and that is fair. For others, however, romance is a foreign and sometimes impossible concept. For some, romantic entanglements easily become toxic. For some, Romantic involvements easily trigger many anxieties. For some, romantic situations are traumatic. The term amatonormativity, coined by Elizabeth Brake, refers to the widespread assumption that everyone is better off in an exclusive, romantic, long-term coupled relationship, and that everyone is seeking such a relationship. It constructs romantic relationships as inherently superior and more necessary than non-romantic ones. This pervasive idea is damaging for everyone, as Elizabeth Bragg details in her scholarships on marriage and policy, but especially so for those on the aromantic spectrum and others who fall outside of the heteronormative monogamous model of romance. Amatonormativity erases the significance of familial platonic and queer platonic friendships slash relationships. So much so that we refer to romantic partners as significant other. As a largely heteronormative concept, it is one of the driving forces behind mind-boggling and widely accepted cultural myths like men and women can't be friends because it assumes that romance and, by extension, sex are the default in relationships between men and women. It's also why so many people abandon friendships and neglect other people when they start dating someone new in inverted brackets, that sounds familiar. And back to the article, quoting, and why the contemporary concept of marriage is viewed as the end goal of dating, despite the fact that marriage is neither wanted or needed for many people for legitimate reasons. So yeah, I was reading from Romance is Not Universal Nor Is It Necessary by Sharonda J. Brown. Um, And that's on where yourvoicemag.com if you want to read the rest of that. Uh, Just one more quote from it. So here's, this is like the headline quote. As sexist and misogynistic as it is heteronormative, this inordinate value placed on romance and marriage is consistently used to devalue single and unmarried women, painting us as inherently unworthy and pathetic, too difficult and too picky. Hmm. Um, so, on this subject of uh, romance and assumptions that might work for some people but don't actually apply to everyone, um, I'm going to play a, a song, um, I guess like asexuality sometimes is has a fraught relationship to, I suppose, non-asexual, allosexual, queer people. So I'm going to play a song by um, 
um, called For Me by Dearly, which is basically a song about asexuality. And that was For Me by Dearly. Um, so touching on earlier topics, um, um, I guess about possibilities and I guess constraints of um, this present moment. I, I've been thinking about the Queer Provocations Conference of 2016, which was the Radical Queer Conference. And there was some interesting, this is, and there was some interesting, it was an interesting panel on housing and welfare and the impacts of increased precarity in terms of work, housing, welfare, uh, you know, rising house prices, welfare being cut, these things and how they impact on the possibilities of queer, like, anti-normative sort of life. So I'm going to play part of Melinda Cooper's contribution to that that panel from 2016, and you can find the rest of it on SoundCloud um, under Queer Provocations Radio. We kind of see there being a kind of pincer movement between housing and welfare with wages in between. Um, And so I'm going to talk about housing first and then Rachel's going to talk about um, welfare. But basically we we see them as kind of um, moving together and having a similar kind of reinforcing effect. Um, Probably historically, like, economic conditions, like um, a kind of um, move toward more generous welfare wages and lower housing prices historically had much more to do with the rise of minority movements, anti-normative, anti-familial movements in the 70s and 80s than people realise. And I think what's happening now in a kind of reverse effect is that the long-term political backlash against these movements and what was seen as a kind of economic familial crisis in the 70s has had the the effect of both restricting... um, restricting welfare, pushing back wages, and pushing people back into familial forms of economic dependence. So I guess what we're trying to say is that if people have this kind of, um, you know, um, this kind of low intensity feeling that the spaces for queer living and extra familial living and sexual experimentation are becoming increasingly constrained, and I think they are, that this has everything to do with the politics of housing and welfare also, and that um, we need to complicate a kind of Marxist history that will see um, this only about class and that the backlash um, against the uh, minority movements of the 70s and 80s was always about sexuality as well. And so I'm going to begin with um, housing and kind of just try to... I mean, this is all analytic because we got to the end of this and just thought this is so depressing because we don't have immediate answers. But we do think it's kind of enabling to kind of develop an analysis of what has happened and how that kind of affects the way people live. So I'm going to talk about housing and just this obvious fact that we live in the city um, which has had the most inflated housing prices in the world apart from Hong Kong, which is just ridiculous. We live at the arse end of the world. This is not a global city, as everyone's telling us. Why has this happened? And on the one hand, it's kind of exceptional because Australia didn't get the housing 
um, crash that happened everywhere else. And on the other hand, it's not exceptional at all. This is the effect of monetary policy, central bank policy since the 1980s, and taxation policy that was adopted all around, certainly the Anglo-American world, but also beyond that, and which was all about um, everything is okay if you inflate asset prices, if you let housing prices go up. But on the other hand, what you have to do at all costs, what governments have to do, what central banks have to do, is make sure that wages are repressed and that welfare payments at the same time are repressed. So that was a very um, deliberate policy that kind of took political form in Australia, interestingly, under the Labor government. So we had a kind of um, happy neoliberalism at the same time as the rest of the world had the kind of ugly... Um, we got our Reagan and our Thatcher with Howard, but we began with our Clinton and our Blair, which was why the 80s was such a kind of... remained an interesting time in Australia. So starting with Keating, but really pumping up under Howard, was the idea that government policy should be all about pushing people towards um, private home ownership, not only as a way of living, but also as a substitute for welfare and for wages. Okay. So that this was deliberately a way of offsetting what was a pretty sustained effort on the part already of um, Labor governments to put a, a, a break on wage inflation. So the whole crisis of the 1970s was seen as too much power for unions, too much power for the left. Um, wages were inflating, non-stop strikes. Um, welfare was being indexed upwards under Whitlam. Certainly there was a period of entitlement and that produced this massive uh, backlash that um, Rachel will talk about in more detail. Um, and since then there's kind of been a calculus on the part of government that if you support easy credit and rising house prices, then this would be a way of winning over the former working classes um, who in the meantime are probably losing out on wages, they're probably losing out on all kinds of public services like public schools, um, healthcare, etc., um, and welfare entitlements. So basically the economic crisis of the 1970s was blamed on the left, which was more or less a kind of accurate um, diagnosis of what went on. It was a period when the left was very powerful. Um, and so the response was basically the formulation of a neoliberal economic policy uh, where it was fine if you let asset prices go through the roof. You can let housing go up and up and up and actually you should encourage that, but at the same time you should repress uh, wages. So since then um, what, what we've seen is like this continual process of asset price appreciation. So whether the stock market or the housing market, everything has been done to encourage that or see that as benign. Um, well, anything that looks like an increase in public spending or wage hikes is actively punished both by financial markets and governments. So austerity becomes more or less a kind of permanent um, economic uh, policy on the part of governments. So this is just a way of driving home the point um, that the phenomenal rising housing prices that we've seen in Sydney over the last 30 years or so is by no means accidental or exceptional. Um, it doesn't just come from the fact that uh, space is restricted in Sydney, though it certainly is in certain ways, or that Sydney is a global city, um, but that this historical spike in housing prices was very much created by government policy. Um, so essentially investors emerged victorious 
from this uh, period, from the 1970s, um, and they had more or less a kind of uh, assurance from the part of governments that they would do everything to protect property prices. And you could expect that that would lead to um, incredible kind of um, uh, social rifts, social inequality, and class warfare, because basically um, you're creating this position you're creating this policy where you say, where someone like Keating actually came out and said, um, uh, uh, capital's income has uh, declined too much, labor's income has increased too much, we need to do the opposite. Keating was saying this very overtly. Um, and when you have a labor uh, treasurer who is saying this, you know that the zeitgeist has changed. So you could think that this would lead to all out class warfare and social crisis. But the way that in political terms that kind of possibility was deflected was by saying, okay, the asset that we're really going to concentrate on is housing because so many people, particularly in a place like Australia, own houses already. So we'll kind of buy them into this policy by saying, uh, look, okay, you're, you have complete employment that was, Melinda, that was Melinda Cooper from the Queer Co Provocations Conference in 2016. Um, and you're listening to Queenia on 3CR Community Radio. I'm Iris. Um, next week is subscriber week. So please support 3CR. We rely on your donations. And you can become a subscriber and tangibly help support this great organisation. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio, bringing you coverage of community issues and events. This is Beard Base Camp. Welcome to the Little Red Tulangi Treehouse. As you said, I'm going to the East West Tunnel picket, as it usually does, starts at 5.30am. The Lincoln Melbourne Authority have come here in the middle of the night and set up another drill rig here on Gold Street. The police were pretty keen to defend that with all their resources this morning. And I think for Australians, in order to know ourselves, really fully know ourselves, in order to mature, we need to understand Aboriginal culture. We need to embrace it and realise that in coming here, you're now part of the longest continuing culture in the world. We need your support. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377 now. Yes, subscribe today. And yes. Um... Yeah, that's a really interesting talk you can, that I previously played um, at the Queer, Queer Qualifications Conference in 2016. So now I'm going to return back to questions about trans visibility. And someone that was in Australia last year was Juliana Huxtable. Um, she's a New York City-based writer and performer, DJ and artist, and... Um, she has performed at MoMA and Whitney Museum of American Art in NYC and most recently at Dark Mofu in Hobart. And Hobart. Um, yeah. Still Nomads recorded, which is an Afri African artist collective based on Wurundjeri and Bunurong, Bunurong and Lenape lands. They recorded um, her in conversation last year. I'm going to play some of that. But first I'm going to read... A small excerpt of of Juliana in conversation with Che Gossett from Trapdoor. 
Um, so this is talking about the, this is the context of this conversation is conversations around trans visibility. And he, this is a quote from Juliana Huxtable. That's the anxiety that I've got gotten from the whole situation because I think that the policing and the violence against trans people have a direct relationship to that increase in visibility. The people who gain visibility, those who whom the media deem to be relatively, in inverted commas, passable, in one sense or another, end up being used as examples to police trans people generally. There's this rift that opens between gender variance and transness as an idea, and I think that's part of the trap of what's happening in terms of visibility. I didn't know how to engage the term trans community, in inverted commas. Are you speaking for the trans community? Are you doing this for the trans community? And I was like, I don't know what the term means. I have no clue what the hypothetical community is that you're speaking of. I am developing my own sense of a community as time unfolds. But when I first started to transition medically, at least, to establish a point of reference, I didn't really have a community. I felt like there was no community, maybe online, on Tumblr, but that was under the umbrella, umbrella of queerness more broadly. At that time, I felt isolated in my experience as a trans woman. I didn't even have trans friends. And the conversation goes on. So, yeah, I'm going to play Juliana being interviewed by a member of Still Nomads. This was from last year. Aren't that visible sometimes. And yeah. so um, I think in the worst sense that that can mean like, oh, you're the artist that we that fits like, you know, the the trends of like transness or sort of like, you know, people want to kind of like check off a list of things that right. makes them feel like they've gotten their diversity marks. And so in the worst way, it can mean that um, for me, um, I don't know if I would describe what I do as necessarily subversive, but I would describe what I try to do in my work is just like bring, um, ask questions that are relevant to communities that I'm part of and how I'm navigating the world, but also try and make, uh, highlight the fact that those questions are also relevant to everyone. And so sometimes maybe if, it's kind of how like when people, sometimes people will describe um, my work solely in terms of like gender and race and I'm like it does deal with those things but like gender and race also implicate like like white people and they implicate like non um, trans or gender non-conforming people and so I try and like highlight both sides of that so right. that it doesn't just become about my work being a kind of um, fetishized thing that's supposed to do something to something that exists outside of it. I'm like, it's just a different perspective, I yeah. guess. Well, um, another label that people have also attached to you, because for some reason people think that it's okay to give you all these labels that you haven't asked for. But, um, but you've been described as a beacon of hope. How do you engage with being a possibility model, which also, um, sorry, while also existing as you? So what do you think about you being described as a beacon of hope? Is it something that you, um, is it a description that you take on or? Um, well, I think that has, that has more to do with how other people see me and see my work. And so I'm honored if, I'm honored that I can 
if, if that's how people engage with what I'm doing, I think that that's cool. I hope, what I hope is that that can be seen as like a process and a sort of conversation um, because there were artists before me that I saw, I kind of like at one point held them up and they inspired me to do what I'm doing. And so I think it's like a conversation and I hope that it doesn't become this idea that there's like, a, I statically exist outside of all of the systems and communities that like allowed me to be um, where I am. Um, and so I'm honored that that's, that people feel um, that way. I also don't, sometimes I don't, I don't feel like my work should be responsible to that because I think that framing that in terms of responsibility, sometimes like that can happen yeah. where people are like, oh, people look up to you, so you have to be responsible to an idea that your work has to aspire towards like a, an, a kind of like positive mm -hmm. example or something. Yeah. Um, and it's I a lot don't, of pressure as well. yeah, I, re I reject that because I think that that that's, would end up me just making like, I don't know, I feel like there are other people that are more suited to that, that are like public role models and that's like what their goal is to do. But I right. think that my work, I should feel room to be like fucked up or to be, you know, deal with my own like problematic dynamics or to be, you know, whatever. And so I want to leave room for that to still happen. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you mentioned, um, you kind of touched on um, how art other artists have inspired you and that's our next question. Um, which artists have inspired you and why? Um, Maybe one or two. I really like um, Coco Fusco's work really inspired me. Um, I don't like the response that she did to the Hannah Black letter. Um, there's, there's a con like the Whitney Biennial recently happened and um, it's a like survey of American art that happens every two years and a lot of people and it pay have a lot of attention to it. And this woman, Dana Schultz, who does like kind of like, like slightly figurative but mostly abstract paintings, did a painting of Emmett Till. Mm. Uh, Emmett Till. And um, Hannah, who's a friend of mine, wrote a letter protesting that, basically ba demanding that it be um, removed and or destroyed um, because it's like obviously really problematic for a white artist to both depict like the most gruesome black body, like destruction of black body, one of the most like visible in American history, but also um, to abstract that. And so, but a lot of artists and a lot of artists that I look up to actually like lashed out against Hannah and like Coco was one of those people. So like, I don't know if I'm like Coco so much right now, but um, <laughs> a lot <laughs> of her okay. work really yeah. inspired me because I think she was able to navigate really urgent questions dealing with like colonialism, dealing with like like uh, like immigration, the sort of history of the United States and Puerto Rico and like the US government in Puerto Rico, but was able to do it in a way that um, had a sense of humor, but also was able to incorporate white people in their own, our whiteness and, and white people in their own kind of like problematics. And so right. she did this performance where she and um, this artist Guillermo Gomez Pena and um, they both pretended to be natives, they made up a country and they um, would set up a cage in the middle of, and they traveled across like cities in Europe, and this is in like maybe 1992 or 1993, and would just do the most absurd things, like feed us bananas, and like 
um, people actually engaged them, and it was like kind of news news like stations were mm. reporting on it as if like totally like the country does not exist. These people do not exist. Like the symbols, even the way that they're dressing is obviously inconsistent. It's like a Native American ish. Yeah. reference like a problematic Native American reference with like a Josephine Baker skirt and people thought it was real yeah. and it was really funny and the response to it was really funny and I thought that and that's kind of like her work is able to be like humorous and like playful but also in like a really dark way that highlights um, and so that's why I like her work um, and she's also just I think she's brilliant um, even though she's does really mm. fucked up things sometimes. Um, and I like Zachary Drucker a lot. Um, she was she was one of the first artists that was dealing with uh, transness that I really looked up to, and she did uh, mostly performance. Um, and yeah, you just have to look at see her work. It's it's hard to describe, but yeah. I really I really like Zachary Drucker. Um, and just two more things. Um, no. I love, um, <laughs> like, Marlon Riggs is one of my main inspirations. Tongue, tongues Untied. Um, when I saw that film, it like changed my life because mm. he deals uses like poetry and text, but also is doing this kind of essayistic film that's like autobiographical. But what he was doing, um, similar. And that was Juliana Huxtable um, at an an event that Still Nomads Co presented last year when she was over here um, in Australia. And that was Hold Me by Two Steps on the Water. And the first song in that bracket was Nothing Forever by Al Qadari, Juliana Huxtable and Hito Sterile. So we reached the end of our show today and it's been... Um, Good to have you listeners and I'm Iris and you've been listening to Queering the Air and stay tuned um, from three to four next week to tune into another episode of another, another sh- Queering the Air show, I should say, more appropriately. Um, just want to quickly plug one thing that is happening next Sunday. 3CR is doing the Communities of Sound from 5 to 7.30 p.m. at Fairfield Park. And it's just like a live music and performance sort of thing at the Fairfield Amphitheatre on Heidelberg Road. And it features Kutcher Edwards, Sando, West Papuan Band, June Jones, who you heard singing just there, Manisha Anjali, Manisha Anjali, Sweet Dreams, DJ Set, Danny Sip. And it's free. So I think I'll be able to make it and see that. And if you want to get in t- contact with Queenia, you can message us on Facebook or send us an email at queenia at gmail.com.